Hey everyone and welcome to Tea and the Law of Raspberry Jam. We're back today with episode 13. 13. I'm here with my friend Esther. Hey. <laughs> and we're talking about reflective observations. Yes, we are. So, Victor, tell me a little bit about reflective observations from your point of view. Well, we've been talking about entering systems in the past. And in this episode, we're going to dive into and share some stories about our use of what's called reflective observations. It's one way to help the system see the system. And we're going to cover basically two areas today. One is reflective observations, what that is, why it matters, when it's helpful, and the scale. And then one is qualitative studies of systems as one way to do reflective observations. And we're using the word studies here, and if you're a native speaker and if you've been exposed to academia, that can have one meeting, and it... It sounds really big and formal. I think it is big and formal, because when you do a qualitative... We're going to get into this, just a sneak peek, but you have conscious thought behind what you're doing. You have a script, you have models, you have real effort looking at what am I looking at, why am I looking at it, how am I interpreting the results, so it's serious, right? So, qualitative studies of systems as one way to do reflective observations. But can you tell us a little bit about what is reflective observation and how does it help and when is it helpful? Well, I think it's a really excellent way to help the system see the system. So, it gives people another view of how their system is functioning, how they're acting in the system. It helps them see patterns. And very often, it seeing that just having that information from an external point of view is enough to help people start making changes on their own. You don't have to do any big intervention. They just, you know, they respond to the data. Mm. Yeah. And it can happen at different scales. I mean, sometimes I do reflective observation with one team or in one meeting, but sometimes it's a much bigger organization, hundreds of people. Talking about the scale of reflective observations, we might want to do small, medium, large, but... But that's entirely relative, right? And I think what matters more is the scale, both in terms of the number of people and the length of time over which you're observing. So you might just observe one small group of people in one meeting. And we covered that in some other podcasts when we talked about observation. And that's still a very legitimate reflective observation. But then you might be talking to a whole department and observing the department, which would take place over a number of days or weeks even. Can you give an example of a reflective observation or qualitative study that you did that was a little longer over time? Yeah, well, I talked to everybody in an IT department of a kind of mid-sized company to get some sense of how their software development process was working, what their practices were, and where the disconnects were. And that really did involve talking to virtually everyone in that department. Sometimes if it's a significant number of people, I'll talk to a cross-section. So I won't talk to every single person, but I may talk to some of the managers, some of the developers, some of the testers, you know, some team members, some people in DevOps or however they're organized. But I want to get a cross-section both in terms of hierarchical levels and in terms of what their functional contributions are. How do you go about, I mean, for the people who are like, yeah, this sounds good. I want to do this. Like, how do you go about Ooh. discovery? <laughs> but how do you discover who to interview or meet with and converse with? Well, I have conversations with the person who's bringing me in, who has interesting perspectives. 
And then I sometimes ask, who else should I talk to? So I may not limit it to who the sponsor tells me I should talk to. What's really interesting when is they start telling you, oh, you shouldn't talk to that person because then you know you really should. (laughs) So when you do one of these studies, I mean, we shouldn't call them studies, but I'm calling them a study because of the seriousness. We had a big conversation about that word study because, to me, a study implies an academically rigorous undertaking, and I don't think that's necessarily what I'm doing. But I agree with your point. They need to be taken seriously, and you need to have some formality to it and some rigor. Yeah. And I mean, I base my studies on academic research. So like I cross-reference it against academic research, like the models I'm using to describe what I'm seeing. So for that reason, I think it is a lot of, yeah. Well, I do too. I do too. But I'm not under the illusion that I'm doing a study that would be reported in any reputable academic journal. No. I hope my work isn't. I don't think my clients would be super happy if I did. (laughs) One way I've been using it that's a shorter period of time in one group is when I enter teams. And I recently did this. And talking to the rigor and the seriousness, I had a script. These are some questions I'm curious about. I ask everyone them. And then I sit for a long time. I mean, there are also observations in these reflective observations over time. It's not just conversations. And so you try to make sense of what you're seeing. So for me, when I enter a team, I'd prefer to meet everyone and I'd prefer to observe a little bit and then have a conversation with the entire team about what have I seen. And then we can talk about what do we think should be some goals for us Mm -hmm. in our working together, Mm -hmm. which is not the way a lot of companies deploy agile coaches. Mm -hmm. I have a cat knocking on my studio door just a sec. Now the cat is in. That's a very clever cat if it can knock. Yes, they're very smart. But so a lot of organizations deploy coaches into team and like, here's your team, go ahead. And they try to start. And that's not a really good way to build a relationship. Mm -mm. These studies, I think, are really good when you enter teams. Yeah. So you said something interesting about how you, I think you said you had a script. Did you use that term? Yeah. Yeah. So I, if I'm going to be interviewing a lot of people, which by that I mean anything more than two. So if I'm going to be doing this as kind of a formal practice, then I always have an interview protocol. And I have thought very carefully ahead of time about the questions I want to ask. And they're related to the goals of the company. I may ask other probing questions, but I always have an interview protocol. Yeah. Because it helps you see patterns. Yeah. I do the probing questions too, but I call them off script. And the only reason is because I transcribe this so I can read it afterwards. And for my own structure's sake, I compare the scripted questions and the off scripted are fine, but I can't compare them. Sure. And I need to know which ones can I look at everyone's answer on to see a pattern in. Sure. So I do the same. Your IT department study, I did a recent one that was also like an entire organization. Over time, I was following them for about six months. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this earlier today as well. Like, what kind of change can you see happen after a reflective observation? And in this case, when I presented what it seemed like to me, the pattern started changing instantly without anyone giving any solutions. So you didn't tell them what to do, but they figured out what they wanted to do. Yeah. Without someone making a three-inch thick binder of recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. And there are times when companies want recommendations and need recommendations based on expertise, but very often just, you know, we keep saying the word helping the system to see the system. Very often just seeing the data for themselves from that point of view is enough for people to gain some significant understanding and make changes. 
And I, I think what I said earlier today is like, what? And this is not how management is taught. You're supposed to have these solutions to everything. And I mean, I do this and I'm shocked every time. Every time I present observations and people change. I mean, I do the same thing. If someone comes and presents me observations about myself, I do change. Why wouldn't I? And other people do it too. But it's another cat wants to come in now. Oh my God, sorry. Yeah, so it's really interesting. And I think in some ways... I still get calls for people wanting, you know, we want you to come in and talk to us and then write us a big report with recommendations. And what I find to be true is that these huge binders of recommendations very often just sit on a shelf somewhere or get filed somewhere. But when people make sense of the data themselves, when I share what I have observed, the data, and I may ask them guiding questions, but I'm mostly trying to get them to see patterns and for them to make the significance of what I'm sharing, they're much more likely to take action. So sometimes they do it without any, you know, just seeing the data. Sometimes it's through a guided discussion, but I think the ownership is much higher when they're coming to the interpretation than having it given from a point of superior expertise. But you're right, it's not what management schools teach. (laughs) So a while back, I had a conversation with an old colleague about we're going to make this episode. And she asked, but I can't make a qualitative study. I don't have time for that. And I'm not even expected to. And am I allowed to? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I wanted us to talk a little bit about that. And there is no, you don't need permission. There is an ethical dimension to it. We're going to get into some important points. Sure. You absolutely need the permission to interview people and to observe people, but you don't need management's permission to follow your curiosity. Um, No. Actually, I find this with a lot of coaches that they say, yeah, but they haven't approved my time to observe. They just want me to get in there and start giving advice. And it's like, well, that's not really very effective. And how can you give good advice if you don't know what the context is? So if you're listening, if you are coaching or an engineering manager or a scrum master, and you're like, oh, there are all these things happening that I'd like to explore more. Yeah, it's a very important part. It's a great tool. It's very helpful for systems. Do it. (laughs) So should we say something about the difference between quantitative and qualitative? Yeah. When we talk about this? We should. I learned the difference a few years ago. I was taking a quantitative approach to it, and it certainly has value But it's very different. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, qualitative data is about perceptions. It's about characterizing a system. It's about needs. It's about, you know, how people are responding to things as opposed to quantitative, which is counting and measuring. And some things are important to count, like counting the number of interruptions or counting the number of stories that get inserted in the middle of a sprint or, you know, the number of defects. Those things can all be important to count and can tell you something about how the system's functioning, but they're not the only aspect of it, right? So the characterization, understanding how people are perceiving things, how people are understanding things, what people's mental models are of things where they might be defining the same term with completely different meaning. Those are not necessarily easy to count, right? But they're super important in understanding what to do. What would you add? I think you summarized it great. And if you find yourself doing a qualitative study and someone is saying something that you think is significant, but it's the only person that said it, you have the freedom to take that because it's a qualitative reflective observation. And that is significant. Mm-hmm. And you could have, if you're working with an organization of 30 people and you have two outliers and you've discovered two poles. Sometimes those outliers are quite compelling. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit about important points. Because if you're doing this, there are some aspects to think about, if you're curious about this. And we have six points. So let's start with point number one. Oh, we're going to cover all six. Okay. Okay. There are a few points we'd like to <laughs> There are a few points we'd like to cover. And I know the first one is very I learned that from you, so Yes. I'm very adamant about this that there's always an ethical dimension to this. You always have to ask yourself why you're doing an observation, a reflective observation or a study and to what ends. You need to think about what you'll do with the data, how will it be used by the organization. You know, matters of safety can come into play, certainly psychological safety and people's sense of face or status can come into play. So you have to think about all those things when you're consulting to an organization or coaching an organization in any way, actually. Important things to think about. The one I did most recently, I included an open network analysis of what subgroups exist. And that was a really, mm -hmm. I think I thought about this over a few days because is it ethical for me to present this? They haven't asked for it, but it's a really important part to show them the subgroupings that exist. How do I do this in a respectful way? How do I do it in an objective way? Mm -hmm. What are we going to use this for? Is anyone else going to see this? How do I make this more for the teams? Can I do that or not? So there was a lot of reflection for me in this. Mm -hmm. So definitely the ethical aspect is important. Another point is that when you're making your observations, it's about what it seems like to you. And that means also being open for that things might not be the way you're seeing it. But mm -hmm. here's what it seems like to me. And here's how I reached my conclusions. It might not be that way, but this is what I've been able to see. And being open to that. Yeah. Yeah, and holding any interpretations very tentatively. And I think these, in general, tend to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. So we're saying this is what we see from, obviously, one point of view, a trained and informed point of view, but this is what we see. We're not telling you what to do with it. We already covered the point about qualitative and quantitative, that this is qualitative. Mm -hmm. And so when sifting through all the data, you know, look for common threads, look for differences, look for outliers that you talked about as well. Mm -hmm. Regularly ask yourself what insights you've got. Paying attention to feelings that people mention or that they seem to be displaying. We can never know what someone is feeling, but if everyone starts leaning back and cringing and making a funny face when you're mentioning a ceremony, that says something, right? Yep. That's information. Quotes are really good when you're doing this so that you're basing it on actual experiences that you talked about. Yeah, the quotes are an interesting thing and in some ways tie back to that ethical question because, you know, they might be identifiable. And so you have to think about this. I came to this process of doing reflective observation through two kinds of threads of learning. And one was more anthropological, ethnographic sort of stance. And the other was through voice of the customer research. And in voice of the customer research, you have anonymity. So it's really easy to do quotes. But if you're in an organization and you're pulling quotes that can be tied back to people, yeah, you have to think about what's the cost. So I come from the customer point, which you talked about, and I do use quotes, mm -hmm. but I make sure that they are, I don't use quotes that would indicate someone who said it because of the ethical aspect. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. I feel like this is one of those topics I've been learning about it more for the last year. And you've been doing this for decades. And I feel like a puppy. Aww. There's so little I know. 
it's fun. It's fine. And it's just no matter how much we study as coaches, this is one of those areas that we don't know because so much of training for coaches is focused on methodology. And then some is the facilitation stance and the coaching stance, but there is so little on the observation stance. Yeah. I actually did a workshop and I have to tell a story. I did a workshop a couple years ago where we did a segment on observation and seeing systems and entering systems. And one of the people there who had been a coach for a long time said, I didn't know there was more to coaching than asking powerful questions. So he may be an outlier, but yeah, I think this is really, for people who are doing agile coaching, I think this is really an underexplored, underutilized. So for me, the first exposure was in problem-solving leadership. Mm Mm-hmm. It was so transforming for me to be one of the observers. And when I got back, I'm so grateful for my team back then because I got a carte blanche from them to just observe anything I wanted to. And I kept my notepad. And I think you talk about this. We talked about this in the observing systems episode. And you talked about this in the training course, which is choose what you are observing because otherwise you're going to get overwhelmed and you're going to lose meaning. And it's going to be very hard to find conclusion. Mm-hmm. And the first six months for me, I just observed everything. And for me, that was helpful, but it was really, really expensive from a cognitive point of view. Mm -hmm. So I had notes from meetings, minute by meeting, what's happening. And it's not really relevant. Maybe it was just two or three events that meeting that was relevant. But I captured everything. I mean, I feel much more competent than back then, but there is just so much in observations. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those areas where we all can do more as coaches. Yeah, and I'm not trained as an ethnographer or an anthropologist, but that's certainly where some of the things that I learned early on came out of. So, yeah. So let's go into summarization, if we can. We've been all over the place. No, we have been (laughs) all over the place. Oh, and look, when I look at my little set of notes that I have for this, summary is blank. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We have the outro covered in our notes, but we don't have the summary. But, I mean, we talked about reflective observations and we talked about qualitative studies and where we're using the word study in a non-academic way. And this sort of reflective observation of gathering observations that are relevant to the challenges of the organization and then sharing those observations back to them is a super valuable thing to do as a consultant or a coach. So if this is something you want to learn more about... I think I can do this because it's not my training course, it's your training course, but you run Coaching Beyond the Team in which you teach a lot of different ways to see the system. That's a great course where you can learn more about that. Thank you. I took it twice. Twice. Also, obviously, problem-solving leadership is also a course that works well for that. Yeah. But you have some book tips. Yeah, there's a book called Practical Ethnography in the Private Sector, and the author's escaping me at this moment, but that's actually a classic ethnographic study from a user perspective. So if you're designing computer systems, but it's a good grounding in some of the issues involved. And the other place to look at is Voice of the Customer Research, which will tell you a lot about how to actually construct an interview protocol and some of the considerations about sorts of questions you include and the order you ask them in. And a third tip would be if you are working in you know, a tech or product org, you have UX people. For my first study, I paired up with that person and I got so much help. It's crazy how much we just don't realize how much they can help with coaching organizations. Yeah. They are just steeped in qualitative observation of people. 
they know how to do this. And they actually very often have a high degree of formality and rigor to what they do. So they're a great set of people to learn from. So get a UX mentor or a UX partner that will help you. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not going to do the design part, learn about the research part. Yeah. Okay, so that's it for this episode. Until next time, have a great week, month, and study, whatever you engage in. Yeah, it's been great. If you have questions, you know, ping us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, or send us an email, and we'll answer your questions. If you have any requests on what we should talk about in our next episode, let us know too. We also have our Trello board where we have what we're thinking about publishing, so you can have a look there. But yeah, until next time. See you later.